0: If you have a brain, you have bias, so let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted, and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity, because sharing our stories is how real belonging
1: happens. What is your headline? What do you want people, there's one thing they know, what do you want them to know about you so that your name can be dropped in rooms you're not in? Because to me, that's the definition of a strong personal brand. It's like when you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't heard of yet because people know your value and they're repeating your headline to others.
0: Summer is coming to a close, and for many of us, September tends to be full back-to-work mode, which is a great time to think about how you're showing up at your job. On today's episode of Breaking the Bias, Consciously Unbiased co-founder Bindu Lokre sat down in a studio in New York with Elisa Licht, founder of Leave Your Mark and author of the new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception. Bindu and Elisa dive into... How to keep your job title from becoming your identity. Why a career pivot starts with changing the way you think about yourself. Ways to rebrand your fear because we all are afraid of something that's holding us back. So you can grow your confidence at work. Now, let's listen in.
1: I grew up in the 80s. I loved fashion. My room was wallpapered with fashion magazines. I didn't know fashion could be a job. And, you know, coming from parents who have European backgrounds, the jobs were lawyer, teacher, doctor. That's what you – or (laughs) engineer. That's what you can be. And quite frankly, I I just accepted it. And I was really good at science but also very artistic. And I was like, I'm going to be a plastic surgeon. Mm. So I actually went to college and studied neurobiology and physiology. Okay. Took my MCATs, did the whole (gasps) thing. And then had this horrendous internship one summer. And the red lipstick was around back in the day. So, my <laughs> big gripe, besides being in a hospital every day, which I felt was just not me, was I was like, I can't wear these masks every day. Like, oh I, I, and which is the irony of like what we just went through. And I told my parents I didn't want to be a doctor. I was, and, and they were like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I want to work for a fashion magazine. And that's what I ended up doing. That's how I started in fashion. Did they cry? Um, My dad was really cool about it. My mom was very judgy, like, well, what's your plan? And at the time, I was like, well, I don't know. I want to work in fashion. She's like, but, but like, do you know anyone in fashion? I was like, no.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so maybe that is is kind of a good segue to my next question, which is what is something that you used to hide about yourself Mm.
1: that you're now really open to sharing? So in third grade, I was sitting in the class, and I was – Playing with this wooden beaded bracelet that I had made that had like an elastic band. Mm-hmm. And the teacher called on me to read. And I couldn't read. And she kept on saying, like, Aliza, are you paying attention? Read paragraph two. And I would like try to get the words out, but they wouldn't come out. And I went home. And while I was really struggling, I kept on pulling on the bracelet, pulling, 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 because I was getting so anxious. And it burst. And the beads flew all over the classroom. And then I got in trouble for being disruptive. And I went home that day and I told my mother what happened. And she was like, you know, I think you have a stuttering problem. And that started like years and years of therapy throughout middle school, high school, college. I did not stutter in the sense of repeating sounds. But what I did was I would hold my breath and not get the words out. So any situation that would put me... In front of a class, on stage, theater, I couldn't do any of that because wow. I didn't, I couldn't speak in that way. And the worst part was I got it in my head, and you know, sometimes we do, where we like talk ourselves into something we can't do. I was like, I can't, I can't say vowels. Okay, well, Aliza is a vowel, it starts with an mm-hmm. A. Mm-hmm. So people would, you know, when you meet new people, they'd be like, What's your name? And I would literally just stare at them silent. So then I would have to like, basically cover it up and be like, my name is Aliza. So this is went on for years and years. And it's something that I I really worked on. And the fact that I can like go on Good Morning America or speak like in front of thousands of people today is wild to me when I couldn't even read a paragraph out loud for years
2: in my my class. How did you feel? Like, how did you feel internally in those moments?
1: Terrified. Just terrified. Terrified. And also people were so mean. Like everyone made fun of me. Mm -hmm. So it was was twofold. It was one, I felt like I couldn't contribute. And by the way, I'm not like a wallflower. Like I am very social. So it was more the sort of on-demand presentation of delivering any type of talk. One-on-one with my friends, I was fine. But it was that anxious. I mean, listen, a lot of people... Or, you know, would rather die than do public speaking. We know this. Yeah. But it was, it was horrible and also felt like it was keeping me back from doing things that I actually wanted to do. Like I love nothing more than public speaking. Hmm. And I just couldn't do it. Do you think it was because you were scared of failing or it was a physical reaction, honestly, okay. because I would get myself so anxious. Yeah. And I would hold my breath. And when you hold, you have to breathe when you're speaking. Uh-huh. And the technique that the therapist taught me was called airflow. So if I could just keep an even pace of breathing, mm-hmm. then I would not let have the words get stuck in my throat. Yeah, yeah. That
2: story, I feel like, kind of goes into what you're doing today, right? Like, I feel like those are all the little moments that we have that make us think about what's important and how we grow and what our career becomes and what we can give back to the world. I don't know, that's what I think when I think about it. And then I was obviously looking at your transition and I really felt connected to when you left Donna Karen and having to reinvent yourself, which was the catalyst for your new book. I'd love to hear like a little bit about that third (laughs) grader to you as an adult and having to constantly redefine ourselves as we grow.
1: It's a great question. I think one of the areas in the book in On Brand that I love, um, I call it an area because it's it's more than just a paragraph, is the idea of rebranding your fear. And mm. I rebranded my fear of speaking because I identified it. I recognized, like, why I'm scared of it. And then I, I shifted my mindset and made myself do it. Mm. And I think you gain confidence by doing And a lot of us just stare at the thing that we're most scared of and we see it, but we're so scared to even like attempt it. So the idea of rebranding your fear, I think is really important because everyone sort of is scared of something and it's holding people back from doing what they know they can do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge, a huge issue for people. When I left my 17 year career at Donna Karen, I... Had to reintroduce myself to myself. You know, I had been the SVP of global communications. I had created a world famous social media personality called DKYPR Girl that was anonymous, that became huge when I was revealed as the person, generated 230 million media impressions. Like it was wildly huge. This is a little gossip girly. This is Gossip Girl. This is Gossip Girl for sure, and inspired by Gossip Girl. And led to my first book, Leave Your Mark, and it was all wonderful. And I think that when we work for credible companies, we're proud to work there, there's a little bit of us where the company actually becomes our identity. Totally. And in Leave Your Mark, I first coined this, and I actually repeated it on brand because I think it's worth repeating, is the idea of not suffering from last name syndrome. So last name syndrome is when your real last name gets replaced by your company last name. So for years, I was Elisa from DKNY. That was my name. I don't even think I ever said my last name. And people used to introduce me as DKNY PR girl, and I was like happy to be introduced that way. But what happens when you leave a company? Then who are you then? So the idea of waking up on that first Monday morning And thinking to myself, oh, my God, like, I don't have an executive title anymore. I'm not part of a company. I'm not part of LVMH. I don't have those millions of followers. They were never mine to begin with. Who am I now? Yeah. So that moment of self-reflection is really how on-brand starts. And the tactics I use to reposition myself is how it starts. And I think what's really important when anyone is thinking about a rebrand or a pivot, they have to first start with changing the way they view themselves. That's yeah. where it starts. Because once you change that, that, you can shape the narrative and teach people how you would like to now be viewed. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of have to like, you
2: do have to really acknowledge the trauma or the transition or the adversity that you have gone through to understand where you want to move to your next place, right? Right. How did that process look for you? Like when you were going through it for yourself and asking yourself these questions, were there these aha moments? Or did you, in the back of your head, kind of know the direction that you were heading in, even though you were scared of all the titles and everything you'd left behind?
1: Well, I, one thing I knew, which was not helpful, I guess it is helpful, but it wasn't helpful, is I was known as a publicist, mm. but I didn't want to do PR anymore, mm. So taking that off the table was even worse because then it's like, okay, I'm none of those other things, but also everything you think you know about me, actually, no, that's not what I want to do anymore. So I really wanted to double down on marketing and digital strategy, but I couldn't escape what Google said about me. You know, if it's like you Google it, it's like PR, PR, PR everywhere. So the first thing I had to do was really come up with my story and like why I didn't want to do PR anymore and what I was looking to do. And then really lean on my network to communicate that. And I think a lot of people especially when they leave big roles, they they shy away from the communication of sort of announcing their next moment or what they're seeking and that's a mistake. And it can feel uncomfortable, but if you don't tell people, if you don't arm them with that information, they can't help you. Right? And in terms of PR, one thing that sticks with me and especially with on brand because, you know, on brand is all about building your personal brand, is the idea of like what is your headline? What do you want people there's one thing they know. What do you want them to know about you so that your name can be dropped in rooms you're not in. Because to me, that's the definition of a strong personal brand. It's like when you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't heard of yet because people know your value and they're repeating your headline to others. Yeah, yeah. What's your headline? Oh my gosh, it's a great question. I think that I am an award-winning marketer who believes in lifting others up, mentoring young aspiring career professionals, And telling great stories. That's beautiful. So, okay. If I
2: were to come in and I was a client, do you have to kind of go through, I mean, I feel like there's a little bit of a therapy session. (laughs)
1: It is work therapy. Yes. (laughs) You're so right. But
2: everyone loves therapy. There's a lot of tools that go into
1: everything that you're doing and figuring out your next steps. I am someone who, well, first of all, even when I stuttered back in the day, my parents instilled really great confidence in both me and my sister. And we were always encouraged to have a voice. So I was very outspoken. And throughout my career, I've been very outspoken. And one of the things, it could be a negative too, but one of the things about me is that I don't see hierarchy. So even as a 22-year-old assistant, if I was in the elevator with my CEO, Mm -hmm. I had a song and a dance to tell him about what we were working on. Like, I I was overconfident, not cocky, but very much, we're the same. Yeah. And And it's kind of crazy, but I literally go through life just thinking we're the same. And by the way, that works the reverse, too. I'm the same as an intern. I'm the same as an assistant. Yeah, I, I keep myself. I, I keep everyone on the same level in my head, mm-hmm. and that's why I can, you know, be with a CEO or equally be with an intern and feel the same in the sense that we're all human and we all have something to offer. So I never needed therapy because I was never comparing myself to anyone else. It's what it's a, a, another. Sort of like Bernfeld, that was my maiden name, Bernfeld girl mantra of, like, mm-hmm. we don't compare ourselves to anyone else. Mm-hmm. And we grew up that way. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I always had blinders on. I was always like, what do I want to be doing? I don't really care what anyone else is doing.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes for an amazing work environment, right? Like, everybody has value. We mm-hmm. joke, we joke and, and consciously biased that we're all co-founders. We're Mm -hmm. all CEOs. We're the CEOs of our business. Mm -hmm. Um, And every aspect of it counts and is important. And there should be a variety of perspective.
1: Yeah. And and honestly, making people feel seen. And so many people will be like, oh, that's the intern. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm too senior to talk to that person. Or, you know, just like the old school mentality of like, I'm better than you. And I just don't think that should exist anymore. That must have been tough in fashion, though. Well, it's funny because fashion is, yes. I mean, fashion is very, you know, it's competitive. It's sharp elbows in a sense. However, not where I grew up. Mm. You know, I think it starts at the top. Mm-hmm, Donna Karen mm-hmm. created this environment that was, entrepreneurial. Anyone could have a great idea. Our receptionist was sketching dresses all day and he would send them to Donna and she was like, great, go make it. Like literally our receptionist did that. It's amazing. And so everyone was encouraged to feel like they had a voice Mm -hmm. and could be creative. So that particular job, that's why I stayed there 17 years, was nothing. And My mentor, Patty, was a blessing. So I have zero trauma from that job. Later on though... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Later on, I experienced um, some toxic work culture situations. I was so naive. I had no idea. Like, I, I literally was living in a bubble at Donna Karen, And, you know, that can really, really crush your soul. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, at least
2: you started in an area that you felt so supported because you knew what made sense and what didn't, and what felt good, what didn't. I agree. I had a very similar thing as well. When I first started, I started at MTV Networks, which was like a dream for a 20-year-old to work at. It was, everybody was empowered, and everybody could come to the table with ideas, and it just felt so collaborative, and it was so fun. And I moved in to beauty, but I had a similar experience, too, because I worked at MAC Cosmetics. And yes, it was a part of Estee Lauder. And Estee Lauder is super buttoned up and super, you know, beauty. But MAC had such a different vibe. And I was surrounded by women, and I was surrounded by gay men, and everybody was so just open. And it was a different world. So I felt like, especially coming into this role of Consciously Unbiased, like, we talk so much about just gender equality in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And I have such a different lens from it because they were always women who same were, with me. Yeah. Who were lifting you up.
1: Yeah. Well, in fashion, like in my in one job, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, I know, But I'm saying I know, like exactly. our company was, I mean, 80% female. Yeah. So there was never a scenario where like a woman didn't have a seat at the table. Like there yeah. were there were only women at the <laughs> table.
2: <laughs> if you were a man, yeah, you were kind of
1: Yeah, It's just (laughs) you were
2: the minority, actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For sure. But yes, I mean, I feel like after I walked out of those experiences and then I became a mother and I had to redefine myself there. And then I had to redefine how I wanted to go back into the workplace and what that looked like Mm -hmm. as a young mother in New York City. It was hard. That's when, you know, you started to have these other experiences where it wasn't this like free for all situation. And that idea of like what you're talking about is how we do have to constantly rebrand ourselves. I feel like that is so important in the workplace, but it's also so important in life. Like, do you talk about that too, about just the idea of rebranding is, it's a lifelong thing that we have to oh, do. Oh, this right?
1: is an ever, a never ending process, but I think, you know, as we go through life, it you know, we can reassess. What do we want to be known for now? Yeah. And then doing the work to shape that narrative to make pe- make sure people understand that. You know, it's funny. Like, I'm a mom. I have two kids also. And that is not part of my brand that I put forward externally because my brand externally is really sort of in service for my professional career, not the... Kids are not important and motherhood is important, but like on my bios on social media, it doesn't say that I'm a mom of two kids. Mm-hmm. Some people do include that as part of who they are as a person. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's a choice. I could next week decide, hey, you know what? I actually want to say that in my bio. So you can yeah. constantly reassess how you want to be seen. And I think really what I'm trying to do in this book is have people really think deeply about themselves. And then see if public perception aligns with how they think about themselves. Mm, because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what you think about yourself if no one else thinks of you that way.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's like a skill for everything in your life, right? Can you tell me like a couple takeaways from the book of, yeah. of tools that, you know, you would – that you think would be helpful for people to kind of build their themselves or think about where they want to go next with their – brand and their image.
1: Yes. So in on brand, I really wanted to be inclusive to the non-social media people. Because I think that there are people out there who are incredibly skilled, mm-hmm. crushing it in their careers and don't use social media. Yeah. However, okay. LinkedIn, LinkedIn is non-negotiable in my <laughs> opinion. Okay. 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 And not just like a profile, but actually being on LinkedIn and contributing. You can contribute in the comments. You can contribute via posting. I am not paid by LinkedIn. I feel very passionate about this. (laughs) Um, But the other thing is really how you're showing up in real life. And the idea of how are you contributing. So when you log on to that Zoom meeting or you enter a room, you're making it better? You're making it worse? Are you leaving no impression at all? People need to understand how they're showing up, no matter the medium, because this hybrid slash virtual world we work in is making a lot of people invisible. So people need, and I actually wrote a piece last week in Harvard Business Review on the idea of why it's so important to build social capital as a remote worker. If you are not proactively shaping that narrative, you are invisible, and that is a real detriment to your career. So... Communication is the number one thing. Don't assume people know what you're doing. And waiting around for someone to notice that you're really good at your job is not a strategy. You need to be able to share your wins strategically and elegantly. And in the book, I have a tip where we all know these people that are just sitting around talking about themselves all day, and you're like, oh my God, can you just stop? Yes, yes. However, Mm -hmm. if we're not sharing what we're good at, And what we've achieved, we are not doing a service for ourselves. So for every one time that you share a win, proactively amplify five other people publicly and share what they have been doing or support them in an endeavor. And I think that ratio is more digestible than someone just speaking about themselves all day. The other thing is message consistency You know, how you're showing up if you are on social. What is your Instagram bio compared to your Twitter bio, compared to TikTok, compared to LinkedIn? Have you even read your bio on LinkedIn in like years since you signed up for your profile, right? Understanding what you want to be known for and then reading through your timelines, your bios, and asking yourself, is this helping my goal? You know, you see someone on Instagram who's maybe... An aspiring marketer, and their bio is like Netflix junkie Taylor Swift fan. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's this is SEO. Those bios are searchable, even if you're private. So choose your words wisely. Choose words that are actually going to support what you want to be known for. And you do have to feed it to people. Another example of super easy, low-hanging fruit. How many people do you know on their personal email who either have sent from my iPhone Or, excuse my typos, Uh, uh that is prime real estate for branding yourself and sharing something that you're proud of. Listen to the latest episode of my podcast. Read my article in Harvard Business Review. Here's how you can work with me. All of those things are lead gen. And meanwhile, we have people who pretend they're working for Apple marketing, for my <laughs> iPhone, or people that are telling people that they're not careful in their correspondence and to excuse their typos. So all of those decisions affect perception. Mm.
2: What would you tell someone if they're like, just it just feels cringy? Yes, I it love this question. It feels like, yes. you know... I feel like I'm just constantly talking. You you already said it, constantly talking about myself or just tooting my own horn. What would you say?
1: I think striking that balance, like I mentioned before, is really important. But if you want to share something, share it within the context of a larger story. Share it within the context of here's what I did And here's what I learned from doing it. Or here's how you can do it. Or here's who helped me do it. So make it bigger than you. And it's not going to feel as bad. But for people who are introverts and are like, I don't care what you say, Lisa. Like, I'm not doing this. Lean on your whisper network to help you get that out there. And what that means is if you're at work in a corporate job and you want your manager to know that you did something... But you are horrified at the idea of talking about it. Say to a trusted colleague, "Hey, in our next team meeting, like I really would love my manager to know I did this thing, but like I don't want to be the one to say it. Can you say it? And if there's something you want someone else to know, like I can drop that. Like have people speak on behalf of you. And when you know that it's like a transactional relationship in the sense of like you're being direct, you're saying I need this support and I will give you back support. Everyone wins. Yeah." Yeah. Well, this is all great information. Thanks. I feel like I have a lot of work to do, too. <laughs> Everyone has – I mean, listen, in On Brand, what I did in the hardcover is I created these mental gymnastics exercises. Okay. So the workbook pages are in the book. That's super helpful. It, it is helpful. It, I it mean, if you're you an going. audio reader, then yeah. it's not so helpful. But I did a reading companion for that one. So Ooh. that's on my website, com. You can download that. So you can do the exercises you know, if you have a good printer, it's 22 pages. Um, We all know printing at home is not really a thing. But I think it's really important. This is the kind of book where I want to hold your hand and give it to you in really small, digestible bites. This is work. This is self-reflection work. This book is about the reader. And sometimes we don't want to face that work. Totally. You know, I was on um, Jenny Hutt's podcast um, a couple of weeks ago and or maybe two weeks ago, and she was like, I read the book cover to cover. She's like, I have so much work to do. She's like, (laughs) I hate homework. It doesn't have to happen overnight. Even if you walk away and you read one chapter and you think of yourself differently the next time you show up,
2: that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like you need multiple copies of each of those workbook pages because it's going to shift. Well, you as... can use pencil
0: <laughs> <laughs> or
2: buy many books. You know sure. what, though? It's so nice to go back and see how you've grown, oh, right? Oh, that's that – yes. You buy know? many books for each year. Good Absolutely. idea. Absolutely. <laughs> or for different aspects. I mean, everyone has 15 jobs these days, true. right? So true. So how does – this, how does your brand, how do you want to show up in this aspect of your life and that one? And, yes. you know.
1: Well, there's a Venn diagram exercise right oh. in the beginning because it's exactly what you're saying. Okay. Understanding how to make sense if you are someone who's a multi-hyphenate and how to make sense from like a content perspective of mm. how you're actually showing up online and what you're talking about. I have a friend who recently asked me if she should sh- share something quite personal and i said to her on, on linkedin and i said to her but you 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 don't post on linkedin so sharing this one major personal thing with no contacts about you people do not know anything about you that's not where you start yeah you know you have to you have to build a foundation yeah yeah and then you can add in something if it's within your guardrails a couple weeks ago when the book first came out i was asked to go on television on a saturday night And, of course, you know, it's like book launch week. I'm like, all press is good press. Like, please sell books. And I considered the interview, and I put it through my mental guardrails for my brand, and it didn't fit. Mm. And I declined during book launch week. My publicist was like, really? (laughs) And I was like, this is not within my brand guardrails. I'm not going to talk about this. So establishing that, and I help you do that in the book, keeps you on track, so that you don't make a mistake publicly. Mm-hmm. And if you do, I have a whole chapter on crisis comms and cancel culture. So, you know. <laughs> Takes you through it all. Takes you through it all.
0: You can learn more about our guests and get show notes at com slash listen. And we want to hear from you. Please subscribe and rate Breaking the Bias on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcasts. And drop us a note to let us know if there's a topic you really want to hear about or a guest you want to have on the show. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias.